Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Our guest today is Shayan Sardarizadeh. He is a journalist at BBC Verify, specializing in disinformation, conspiracy theories, verification, open source investigations, and extremism. He has covered a variety of topics we've discussed on this podcast, both in articles he's written for the BBC and his live fact-checking via Twitter. He's an absolutely invaluable resource if you want to separate fact from fiction online, and he is certainly a must-follow on Twitter, Shyan86. We're really excited to get to talk to him today. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. Cheyenne, thank you so much for being here on Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you. Pleasure being here. So how did you get started researching disinformation, conspiracy theories, and extremism? Yeah, it, it started for me uh, around about 2015, 2016. So I, I, I worked in a, a team within BBC News um, where our, our work basically was constantly verifying online footage. So... That you know, there was a terrorist attack in Paris, or uh, some kind of bombing incident, or some natural disaster in some part of the world. Obviously, um, you know, these days the first place where you get footage, content uh, showing what's happening or giving you an idea of what's going on is social media. Right. But obviously, uh, there's there's quite a lot of stuff on social media that's not genuine. It's old. Is manipulated. Is not real. So our job was to basically look at these videos when we were in breaking news situations and try to figure out whether these these videos were genuine or images were genuine, real, something that the BBC could use in its output or not. Now, I would say naturally from that work around about 2016, 2017, when the BBC uh, established um, a, a dedicated, a small dedicated unit to, to covering online disinformation, I sort of made the transition from that team from sort of just just content verification online to what basically was in a sense my passion you know i've always been passionate about conspiracy theories and mm. how they how they spread and how they affect the mind and how you know any of us at, at any point regardless of background education you know what are our financial situations where we are at what stage we are in, in our lives our careers you know, they, they, they impact all of us um, pretty much in, in, in different ways and different shapes. That's, that's always been sort of my passion. So when, when there was a dedicated team within BBC News looking at that stuff, I, I sort of naturally joined, um, allowing me to do, for me, it, in a sense, it was a dream job, something that I, that I always wanted to do. And then obviously, initially, uh, we, we were dealing with quite a lot of stories from America as as would pretty much have been mm-hmm. uh, up, up to this point. You know, your country is a, is, a, is a massive source of news for us doing doing that that specific type of work. But then obviously COVID hit. And um, in addition to being a once in a generation type event for all of us, it was also a once in a generation type event in terms of the 
explosion of misinformation and conspiracy theories that that arose directly as a result of COVID and uh, the lockdowns that happened around the world. And then obviously with the development of the COVID vaccines, that also sort of all that stuff took a life of its own. Um, so it, it kind of, I think COVID brought the, the, the significance of this type of work, this type of journalism to, to a lot of people who previously probably would have been, would have been a bit more skeptical. And then as if by magic, you had your presidential election in 2020, which again, coming straight off uh, the the sort of uh, conspiracy bonanza of COVID, we had that election mm-hmm. and all the things that happened in America, both both in the run up to it and obviously even more significantly after the election in the two months after the election, what was happening both online and offline in America, which obviously, as we all know, led to led to the capital riots and then while you know after after those two we thought we were kind of you know things were cooling down a little bit and and uh covid was starting to covid was starting to disappear and we we're getting back to normal life obviously the war in ukraine happened hmm. which again was another massive explosion of misinformation you know a war uh on the european continent that none of us had seen in our lifetimes well, but some of us those like me who are a bit older do remember like uh, conflicts in in Europe, but for for the younger generation, it must have been the first war that they have witnessed on the European continent. Right, right. Um, and then, yeah, from then on, it's been nonstop, pretty much, with, with with the Ukraine war, and also while the COVID misinformation has has kind of not not completely gone away. You know, there are people. I, I think who who will live by the, the sort of COVID conspiracies for the rest of their lives, but uh, obviously we've got the new uh, sort of U.S. election campaign starting soon, and yeah, we've got other topics including you know climate change, environment, that sort of stuff is also coming into the fore in terms of the type of work can we do, and obviously um, AI, which is you know I, I think that the, the the next big topic for us, right. It is interesting that you're someone based in the UK and a lot of what you cover is in the United States. And I think here in the United States, we are very much focused on ourselves and it's easy for people here to forget how much what happens here affects the outside world, the entire world. And our news, unfortunately, can dominate the world news. And so that is really an interesting perspective. And I think one that you know, easily gets missed here in the in the United States. But- normal, right? I mean, obviously, America is, is the most powerful, most influential political, military, economic force in the world. So, you know, whatever happens in America has, has an enormous impact, obviously, on the on the rest of the world, and particularly on the rest of the Western world. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I've never visited America, by the way. When I when I mention it, I've got loads of friends in America uh, through this job because, right. as I say. Every single day of my work is basically looking at America, reading about America, watching American news, going on American-focused online platforms and forums and all the rest of it. It's like, you know, America is like my second home that I've never visited. And then, but yeah, it's the country that I definitely spend most of my time um, watching and monitoring and, and writing about because of its unique makeup and also the fact that I mean we we can get into this. It's it's kind of an open question why America is so susceptible to conspiracy theories. 
far more than many other Western nations. In and of itself, it's a it's an interest, interesting topic, and people have written books about it. I don't I don't know that there's a definitive answer for it, but yeah, that's that that is the case, and because obviously any any major development in America has a huge impact on the rest of the world, it does take quite a bit of our time. Yeah. So speaking of stuff that happened in America that caused you know worldwide outrage in a lot of ways, there was recently a gentleman by the name of Mauricio Garcia who did a mass shooting in Allen, Texas a month or so ago. And there was a lot of debate because of his heritage about whether he could possibly have been an advocate for the positions that he was an advocate for. So like to get your take on that one. You covered that extensively. Um, do you feel that he was a neo-Nazi? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no question about it that, that he was. Um, you know, d- d- never mind the fact that Texas police confirmed that he was, you know, they right. just said it in black and white that that, that the guy definitely had, had neo-Nazi sympathies. I mean, his, his social media was obvious. Again, that's another big part of my job, basically, when unfortunately mass shootings happen, particularly in America, we try to find out, you know, who, who this person was, why they did what they did, what their motivation was, where they radicalized online, you know, what what ideology they were, uh, they, they particularly had. I've looked at so many, you know, similar types of um, accounts and individuals who, who were un- radicalized online and then unfortunately... I took whatever nonsensical views they had on innocent people, and this is this is this this I would say is a, is a rough, is a kind of a more recent development that we now have to have to actually argue over. Well, this person that did this mass shooting, and you know, we have this social media uh, account for this person or social media accounts for this person, where they make their views absolutely 100% mm-hmm. crystal clear to everybody. We now have to argue whether that is real or not. That That is definitely like, you know, I didn't expect us to get to that point. You know, it's perfectly fine to say, hey, this mass shooting has happened. We can we can discuss whether, you know, somebody's ideology actually was the reason they did this or was there something else at play um, and all the other topics that you guys in America have been discussing for a long time. But, but the idea of yeah, I mean, in in this case, particularly coming from the from one of the most powerful and influential and richest people on the planet, Elon Musk, basically just saying, yeah, I mean, this stuff was just all made up. Bellingcat, which is obviously a an investigative outlet headquartered here in the UK, they they just made up this this account on on the Russian platform. <laughs> why? I mean, why, why? Why on earth would they do that? And then saying it's some kind of a psyop. Which, by the way. I, I hate that word. Like it's it's one of those words that has become basically a code word for anyone with any political ideology or view. Whatever happens that is inconvenient and they don't like, it's a sire. Mm-hmm. So that definitely was a bizarre one. But yeah, I I did uh, spend hours and hours um, looking at that man's account on a a Russian social media platform called Odnoklasniki, and it was basically like a diary. How how extensive it was going back quite a long time he not only did he post um daily notes sometimes actually handwritten on on pieces of paper they would then take a picture of with sort of nazi insignia and everything he had a nazi tattoo 
he also took pictures of himself with his Nazi tattoos, specifically after he got them. He got them in April, if I'm not mistaken, or March. But also he posted repeatedly of his love for the Nazis. Nazi insignia was all over the stuff that he wrote and posted on that platform. He posted a meme, particularly about, you know, why as a Latino, he, he liked white supremacy. I, I understand that that's a bit odd, but it's not, you know, there are there are actually Nazis in Latin America. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, people normally assume, you know, if somebody is a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi, they have to be a certain type. That's not the case. You know, it's it's an ideology. Fascism is an ideology and, and it, it attracts people of all different types and kinds. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he posted his ID card, his 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 speeding tickets, his his credit card. All of it was there. There's absolutely no question that was him. And he also had a had a YouTube account that had like one video mm-hmm. where he basically unmasked himself. He, he was he was wearing like the ghost face outfit from the screen films. And it takes it off. And that was exactly the guy that we saw in the video. So there was a video of the aftermath of the shooting in, in Allen, Texas. And we saw the guy who'd, who'd, been, who'd been shot dead by, by police. It was the same guy. So there's no question that was him. And there's no question he was a neo-Nazi. As I say, I don't understand why we have to argue over these things. But, you know, that's, that's the world we live in now. Yeah, it seemed like he posted on this Russian site because he was fairly confident that the material would stay up and stay live because they have very lax moderation policies. And he wanted people to understand who he was and what he believed. And he spelled it out very clearly and very clearly identified himself. And then journalists at Bellingcat and you and others went and confirmed all this And then, yes, you were told that's fake. It's a psyop. And it did seem from my outside perspective that you faced a lot of backlash. And I guess I wonder, was that unprecedented, the amount of pushback that you got with this story? And did you did you feel like you kind of had to learn on the fly of how to deal with kind of a new level of criticism there? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I face criticism all the time, and that's perfectly normal. You know, I, I've got I'm a journalist with a with a massive platform, and um, you know, people criticize your work, and that's absolutely fine. In terms of the pushback, no, I mean, again, that's normal. That's to be expected, particularly from America. I mean, the stories we covered about COVID, the, the pushback was immense in terms of COVID conspiracies and anti-vax conspiracies around COVID because those narratives attracted so many people. Same with the U.S. election, same with the Ukraine war, and now same with these mass shootings. You know, it, it, it's to be expected. I don't pay too much attention. You know, it doesn't bother me. You know, it is what it is. It's the internet being the internet. I don't care. The thing that you have to care about, which I do and take very seriously, is that whatever you publish, both in terms of what goes on the outlets of my employer, the BBC, and also on my own social media platforms, uh, my own social media accounts. I take those extremely seriously. I check every word, every sentence, and as long as I can back it up with evidence that you know what I published is evidence based, that's fine with me. You know, because whoever's criticizing it, you can show them the evidence. If they want to, they don't want to believe the evidence. Well, that's 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 a matter for them. But as long as you can back it up with evidence, it's fine. And by the way, you're absolutely right, because it was again questioned by Elon Musk himself and some people on social media that why was this guy on a social on a Russian platform when he didn't speak any Russian? Well you don't need to speak Russian 
to be on the Russian social media platform. I mean, Russian social media platforms, like any other foreign social media platforms, have English, you know, layouts. Uh, and this one, by the way, it 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 wasn't an obscure platform. Odnoklasniki is one of the most popular platforms in in Russia. The reason, as you say accurately, the reason he posted there was that he knew the chance of his his material, knowing how basically far right and extreme his material was he knew if he posted it on facebook or on twitter or on tiktok or on instagram or on youtube the chances were people like you and me and other journalists or researchers who look at this stuff would, would spot it and report it or other normal users and it would be taken down or even those platforms uh, own built-in tools would spot the material and take it down but he knew <laughs> the chance of it being taken down in English on a Russian platform and Russian platforms normally it's not just that one um that the, the sort of um moderation on those platforms is usually very lax even like the likes of VK I mean Telegram you can't exactly call a Russian platform although you know it originally came from there it's now like a proper global platform but yeah it did you know moderation on those platforms is not the same as the major US-based social social network so that's why he was there right so you mentioned elon musk jumping on the bandwagon of skepticism about this story and this isn't the first time elon musk has done this when it comes to a story like this when u.s former house speaker nancy pelosi's husband was assaulted in his own home Elon Musk was one of the people who was very skeptical about what ended up being the case where this was a gentleman who got sort of self-radicalized reading this propaganda. And he was very skeptical about it. He pointed to other news articles. This is an ongoing theme with Elon Musk. So how much would you say your job has changed since Musk took over Twitter? Um, it's a, a bit because to, to my mind, Twitter wasn't the worst platform in terms of sort of viral misinformation. There were others that I thought were a bit worse. Particularly TikTok was was sort of uh, overtaking all the Facebook. In you know because I'm I'm quite old for us, uh, you know, granddads <laughs> and grandmas. Old Facebook was the place. Particularly Facebook groups was the place where most of these narratives start spreading. But now I would say like you know particularly. Twitter in the last few months, it's become it, it's kind of come to a life of its own. By the way, I'm I don't care about Elon Musk's personal views. He's entitled to his personal views. Whatever he wants to believe is free to believe. But um, yeah, I, I just find it a bit bizarre for for someone with that with that level of influence and power. You know, he's 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 the most followed account on Twitter. He's one of the best known figures in the entire world. It it comes with a bit of responsibility, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of you know that your your words and your actions carry quite a lot of weight and can impact people. So you know it's perfectly fine to be you know skeptical of you know what is called you know the official narrative or the establishment narrative. That's perfectly fine. It's quite healthy in any free democratic society. But once the wealth of evidence is out there and you've got police who've been investigating saying, you know, this is the case. The same with the Paul Pelosi case, for which he actually deleted his tweet and then apologized. Then obviously when the facts change, you change your you change your view. You know, it's perfectly fine to be skeptical, but once the facts are out there, the natural, normal, responsible thing is to say, yeah, those are the facts. 
But then, yeah, I mean, in the case of the Texas gunman, he sort of doubled and tripled down, um, even after the facts were presented to him, which, you know, that's that's a matter for him. He, she should, he should respond to that. Yeah, that is uh, interesting. And it is okay to be human and, and admit our flaws and mistakes. And I know we make them and I'm, I'm sure you do too. It can be hard to admit them, but yeah, we're all human here. And I think everyone listening mm-hmm. knows there there may have been a time they retweeted something that, that turned out to not be true. And those sort of stories that, that we see that we want to believe on social media are everywhere. And we have to, we all have to self-police and that can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not, it's not a gotcha game. Like, you know, it's not like, it's not some sort of a war or something. You know, I've, I've fallen for online misinformation loads of times, plenty of times. And I do this for a living. It's actually quite, quite appealing and quite difficult sometimes to tell, to tell the truth, particularly, you know, if, if you don't have the time to properly check, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're tired. You're coming back from a long day at work. You're on your train. You're on your commute back home. And you're just scrolling through your feed and you just see something and you don't have the time to check. And you go, yeah, that, that, that seems like it's true. And you see it's got like, you know, it's been shared by 5,000 people, liked by 10,000 people. And you go like, all oh, those people can't be wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you just share it. Like, you know, it happens. And um, that's the nature of social media. And that's why false information goes viral on social media. It's the power of social media in a sense. But yeah, that's, that's not a problem at all. As long as, you know, once you see the actual facts, you go, yeah, I mean, you hold your hands up and say, yeah, that was wrong. I was wrong. Here's the truth. Yeah. So also wanted to talk about a gentleman, a young man by the name of Jack Teixeira, who was an Air Force reservist who had been leaking classified, beyond classified information that he was getting access to in the course of his job to his discord server and his gamer friends. What kind of stuck out to you about that case? And do you think this kid's a product of our current internet culture that we're spreading at this point? Yeah, absolutely. No question. Um, Everything from obviously, you know, everything I'm saying is just based on, the messages that he was sharing on Discord, that some of which I've read, I haven't read all of them, but I've read quite a bit of them. That that's that's what it seems like. First and foremost, he was a gamer. Like that right. that was the thing he was he was most interested in. That the, the thing he was most interested in from from what I've seen and read of him, it was not politics. It was gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then through gaming and through the sort of you know he 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 was obviously a young man, a product of the sort of online social media, permanently online age. He was visiting, you know, platforms like, you know, it's obvious that he was a 4chan, uh, 4chan guy. He constantly read 4chan, you know, he, he, he mentioned 4chan memes and phrases all the time in in, in what he was typing on Discord, uh, which is absolutely fine. You know, I, I read 4chan right. for, my, for my work, but, you know, there's a difference between reading it while being aware, you know, what what type of a platform 4chan, particularly the the sort of politically incorrect and also the A-boards of 4chan are and, and what type of people usually populate them. Um so that that, you know, um he he I think I think when it all comes down to it, first of all, it's it's bizarre how brazen it was. Um yeah. but at the same time, given his age uh and, and and the type of online environment that that, that he was in 
it's also not surprising. What 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 I do find interesting about that about that particular case is that he definitely because because of his type of work, although he was a low ranked officer, he definitely would have would have gone through all the necessary training and courses about you know what he can share online and what what he can say about himself and all the rest of it. But for some reason, either either he decided to ignore it because he thought he couldn't get caught on a on a private Discord server, which is again kind of bizarre for for someone who was a was a was an online kid. He should have known that you know once it's online, it's not going to stay private. Um, but then second, um, it's kind of he, he, as somebody who was. I don't think we could necessarily say he was a member of the US Intel community, but he he kind of was was part of it in a sense as a low-ranked officer and, and obviously he had access to classified documents. I'm I'm kind of surprised by just the, the way he was sharing the images, you know, just, just sort of in his house, uh, in the kitchen, just sort of taking in, taking an image of a document with all the background. And obviously, you know, I do this job for a living and other people do it. Once you take a picture of your house with the background, including the tiles and the floor and the walls and, and even like the, the equipment that's in the kitchen, you're basically making it possible to, for somebody to go start looking around and you do it over and over again. You do it in your bedroom, uh, you do it in your car, you do it in on, on, on your way where you're, when you're going to work, which, which happens to be a place that is supposed to be not somewhere where, where you're supposed to take images or share images of that place. Right. And then obviously on top of that, you also do like, you know, you're, you're into guns and you post online on Discord, on 4chan or whatever. And also you you, you post videos of yourself shooting things um, with different guns and also posting kind of questionable content in terms of what he said about, you know, Jewish people and and, and other things. You're kind of, you're, you're making it easy for people to find out who you are, what you do, and the material that you're sharing um, is basically, you know, shouldn't be out there. You're basically, you know, breaking the law. So it's kind of, in that sense, it was bizarre. I, I do think in, in a sense it shows like we have to obviously take into consideration his age. He was only 21 years old after all. I, I do remember what I was like when I was 21. So in a sense, you know, obviously there are questions to answer for people who are, you know, in charge of the U.S. intelligence community and that are decision makers of our festival, the level of intelligence that is that is sort of shared around, even with sort of really young, low-ranked officers, you know, is it appropriate that they can see all that sort of stuff? I don't know. That's that's a question for them. But also, I do think he was, in a sense, he didn't he he hadn't had a chance to to to, to know about the consequences of one's actions in the real world. Right. You know, as I say, I do remember what I was <laughs> like when I was 21. I knew what was right and what was wrong. But it's only later in life that you realize, you know, there are proper consequences for the actions you take and you have to be careful. So for a young man at that age to to, to have access to some of the biggest secrets of, of the U.S. government and then deciding for whatever reason. And in this case, obviously, he had some, you know, political beliefs. Um, although, as I said, it, it definitely wasn't the, the most important aspect of, of his character. Um, but yeah, he, he, he did have some political beliefs. He, he seemed like, you know, he leaned kind of right wing libertarian in his own personal views to then sort of 
assume they can just share that stuff on a private Discord chat as a result of lockdown with people you've never met. You know, your friends obviously online and apparently was a tight-knit community, that that private Discord server, when, you know, all of us were during were, were, were at home during COVID lockdowns and then they be- became closer and they were talking all the time. But still, you know, those are people you've never met. Although you talk to them, you message them, you know, you probably have phone conversations with them, all the rest of it. It's in that sense, it just it just smacks of somebody who was too young, too inexperienced, and still not aware of the consequences of the of the of the of the actions you take properly. But yeah, that was again a kind of a bizarre situation. It was one of those that you could you can make a film out of it, the way the way it sort of broke and the way it became a story. And once we found all the different angles to it, you know, so many crazy things happened for it to actually come into the public domain. But yeah, I'm guessing we will have more episodes like that, even more, more bizarre ones. Right. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's going the other way for a lot of these people at this point. It's definitely a, an overshare environment now, it seems for a lot of these kids. And we saw with him, a as you mentioned that some kind of latent and sometimes overt anti-semitism or bigotry or other things that we've come to expect in certain online communities like 4chan and it's usually couched in oh it's it's a joke it's sarcasm and it, it does make you wonder how much of the culture he kind of absorbed was intentional or just he spent enough time online and and it kind of became part of him. But that that's something that I think, especially with kids, we don't entirely know how much all this access to social media and the internet affects them. But it's it's something to to be aware of and and we as we all, you know, get older and our kids grow up, we're we're thinking about and worrying about. But one thing I did want to ask you about his case, there were quite a few right-wingers, particularly in America, as you say, a more libertarian bent uh, that defended Teixeira. Marjorie Taylor Greene came out and and had, you know, a, a solid defense lined up for him. And there were a few others. Did that surprise you at all? Or is that just what you've come to expect? There's there's always a defender for just about everything out there. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's tricky for me as a journalist because first of all you know we we love like you know whistleblowers people who sort of share secrets of governments and and we sort of uh, we find out some some things that we otherwise would never have known like you know that the material that say edward snowden shared you know if, if he hadn't done it you know you, you can have your your own opinion about whether it was right or wrong or whatever i'm not going to comment on that at all but the stuff that he shared if he hadn't we wouldn't have known the extent to which uh, governments like the US and the UK can actually access our private data. So it, in, in one sense, it's fascinating to me. And all the documents, obviously, that he took images of and shared, you know, gave us quite a lot of information about the war in Ukraine, for instance, that we otherwise wouldn't have had because it was classified information. So I always welcome that sort of stuff. But at the same time, you know, Jack Teixeira did not fit the, 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 the definition and description of a whistleblower by any means at all. You know, a whistleblower is somebody who's fully aware of what they're doing and they're sharing 
secrets or classified data with the public because they do think there's a point to it. They think, you know, something has gone wrong and the public has to know about this. They're fully aware they're breaking the law, but they think there's sort of, there's a public interest, that there's this point of public interest that, that, that pub, the public should know this thing is going on with, say, your, you know, tax money. And you may not like that this is happening. I would like you to know this is actually going on. That's a whistleblower. In the case of Jack Teixeira, he wasn't a whistleblower because he was he was fully aware that what he was sharing was illegal. And he told, we know from the accounts that, that some of the other guys who were in the private chat with him on Discord, he was sharing this in a private Discord chat, thinking that it was not going to get into the public domain. So as opposed to, say, people like Edward Snowden or WikiLeaks or Chelsea Manning, who, who, who sort of shared this stuff with, with, with journalists or published it themselves, he was sharing it in a private Discord server. And he said repeatedly to his friends on that Discord server, no matter what you do, don't share this with anyone. This is, this is sort of classified data. The problem was obviously you have a private Discord server with several and he was by the way the eldest member of that group right at 21 he was the eldest member some of them were actually minors if you remember a couple of right. guys spoke right. to the washington post we didn't see their faces because they were minors so you're, you're trusting people even younger than you teenagers who are permanently online like you and probably think it's cool to to have access to all this data uh you, you're sort of trusting them not to share that stuff and obviously they did that's how it got into public domain. One of the members of, of the private Discord server basically shared it on a public Discord, on another public Discord server, while they were in, in an argument about the war in Ukraine. You know, two teenagers were basically having a back and forth about the war in Ukraine. And then one of them goes, here, have some, have class, some classified data to win the argument. <laughs> and the same thing also happened on 4chan, by the way. You know, two people were just having a discussion on, on politically incorrect, on poll. And then one of them also shared some of the documents there. So he was taking a massive risk, but at the same time, he wasn't willingly sharing this stuff with the public and sort of going, quote unquote, rogue. He didn't want this stuff to, to get out there. It just happened that, you know, he, he took a massive risk. And obviously, at some point, it wouldn't. He would have been extremely fortunate and lucky if it didn't. But yeah, he wasn't a whistleblower. So I found that aspect of it kind of bizarre. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I, you also have to have sympathy and compassion to some to some extent. You know, he was a, he was a twenty one year old guy. Should he have been given all those secrets of the U.S. government as a low ranked officer? I don't know. But again, that's not that's not that's not a discussion for me. That's not something for me to comment on. You know, it's it's way above my pay grade or or or, or the type of work that I do. You did uh, mention that. A lot of the material to share ultimately released or was released because he shared it on that private Discord server had to do with the war in Ukraine. And I know one of the defenses of him was that he, by leaking this or allowing this to get out, he was preventing World War III because for a certain sect of the online subculture. When we're looking at Ukraine, there is an imminent threat of nuclear war. It will escalate to World War III. The U.S. will be forced to get involved. They think this is always, you know, we're just half a step away from that. But I think you know, and, and we know that the war itself is is much more about the day-to-day and the 
the job that you were tasked with is looking at the claims that are made on social media, the videos, the pictures, and figuring out what's real, what isn't, what's old recycled material. I guess my question would be, is the fact that it is an active war zone, does it make your job uh, fact-checking what's going on in Ukraine a lot harder? Is it Was this new for you? Did you have to kind of learn a new set of skills or was this just kind of building on what you've already done in the past? Yeah, I mean, the, the Ukraine war was not the first war that was also fought online. The Syrian war, in a sense, was. And obviously, the Ukraine, even the first stage of the Ukraine war in 2014 in, in sort of eastern Ukraine, that was also similar in some ways. But it was the first full-scale major conflict involving two big nations with um, uh, with sort of proper military uh, capabilities that was fought not just on the ground, obviously, but also online. Because, you know, in, in this day and age, a war is not just a conflict involving, you know, tanks and fighter jets and infantry right. and, and shelling and all the rest of it. It's also an online war. And both sides are fighting it and they have been fighting it um, since the day it began. So uh, initially, obviously, when the war started, obviously, it shocked everybody. All, all three of us remember how there was you know, wall-to-wall coverage um, all around the world of, of, of that conflict. Obviously, you know, it, it kind of slowed down a bit in terms of the wall-to-wall coverage in the West, both in America and here in the UK, a few after, after like a couple of months, after like you know, two, three months. But the pace of war misinformation on online platforms hasn't slowed at all. It's been kind of nonstop, pretty much daily. I'm, I'm looking at false claims going really, really viral. You know, you know we, we're talking about manipulated videos, fake images or false images or false claims that are viewed by millions and millions and millions of people on platforms like TikTok, Twitter, uh, Instagram, YouTube, and you name it. And interestingly... It's, it's kind of quite interesting that the vast majority of the false claims actually do not come from Russians and Ukrainians. Even like, you know, obviously Russian, there are sort of Russians, Ukrainians who are fighting. They don't have time. Although, you know, you do get quite a lot of videos from the people who are involved in the fighting. They share, you know, what's going on on the ground on online platforms. And, you know, that's, that's a source of material for us to, to find out what's actually happening in a war zone. But they don't have time that the actual people are involved in the fighting. They don't have time to argue online. Um, most of the material that is that is being shared that is false is actually coming from people with with, with specific agendas, either pro Russia or pro Ukraine or against this or against that, or e- even just people who who have a very sort of conspiratorial view of the world in the West. That's that's the source of most of the false material. I'm not saying there's nothing from, you know, like the, the Russian embassies, the verified accounts of Russian embassies on Facebook and Twitter are a massive source of misinformation. Like I mean, if I could if I could let's just list the claims that are fact-checked from Russian embassies, like it's 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 insane that the, the material that they've posted. But that's kind of expected. I mean, they're one side of the war and they want to obviously fight the information battle. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I understand it. But, you know, some American influencer or some British influencer or some German influencer posting something that is verifiably false 
and getting massive engagement. That's sort of that's that's a completely different thing. And that's most most of the misinformation that I've seen from the war in Ukraine has actually come from people who are not directly involved in it. They just see the Ukraine war. I mean, again, I think it comes off the back of COVID and the US election and the and the and the culture war in the in, in the West and particularly in the US. Because you now have to take a side on everything. Like, you know, even if it's a war on Europe, on the European continent, that uh, apart from the fact that obviously most of the governments around the world, particularly in the West, take the side of Ukraine, and then Russia is on another side, and there are plenty of other other governments around the the world who are kind of neutral because they want to have relations with both governments and they just want want the hostilities to stop. And then there are a few governments who are on the side of Russia. It doesn't have much to do with sort of the day-to-day lives of us, apart from the sort of geopolitical impact of it, and as you said, the risk that it could escalate into something something much bigger. But the fact that we now have to have a, have a sort of fixed and firm opinion on everything, and then you know there are people in America and in the West involved in the sort of daily culture war, who have convinced themselves that you know this is a proxy war started by America and the West because and and it's kind of linked to the sort of global takeover and this sort of communist socialist world government that is coming every day. And it's very imminent. You know, some people have been saying it's imminent for for decades now, which is ridiculous to even believe that. (laughs) The idea that all of these governments around the world and all these politicians are actually competent enough to put together a world government. (laughs) A lot of, actually, a lot of uh, global conspiracies are, are sort of ignore human incompetence. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting in, in and of itself. But, you know, there are people who have, who have convinced themselves that this is a war, is a proxy war that was started by the West and particularly the US government. And they're just posting about it. And they post whatever piece of misinformation that they can see on the internet in order to reinforce that narrative. Some some people do it not for those ideological reasons only. Some Plenty of people do it for clout and engagement. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the one of the easiest things people ask me, you know, how do I go viral online? And I just say, just pick one topic that interests quite a lot of people, post about it regularly, and just post whatever nonsense that, that you see. Like, you know, <laughs> without even a care in the world about it, 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 whether it's accurate, it's not, it makes sense, whatever. Just post regularly about a specific topic, and then you will go viral. Because people want to hear and see and read what they want to read and see and hear these days. And it partly it's also the impact of social media platforms and, and sort of the the echo chambers that they create to make money, because that's that's for them how they make money, to just sort of give us stuff that we want to see and hear and read for them to make money. But that's also this is also a side effect of it. That everybody now just wants to see what they what they want to see, wants to believe what they want to believe. So you can you can go viral and you can become an influencer online in a very short space of time, as long as you just you just permanently online, and you're just permanently posting, and you put whatever sensationalist, outrageous, outlandish nonsense they can get your hands on, and that's that's good for those people because you know they think they have some kind of power and influence. You know, once you've got fifty thousand followers, sixty thousand followers, one hundred twenty thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand. You feel like you know you're 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 a powerful individual, and and you can basically control the views of the people who follow you and impact their impact and influence their viewpoint. So you know 
once it starts feeling cool, you're just going to carry on doing it. You're not going to stop. You're not going to go like, okay, I'm, I've, I've gained 50,000 followers in two months by doing this. I now want 100,000, 150,000, 200,000. You just carry on doing it and, and doing more and more and more. But that's the world we live in. And, and that's, in a sense, a sort of description of the, the type of content that I see in terms of the war in Ukraine. It either comes from, it, most of it comes from people who are either ideologically on one side of the war. By the way, the level of misinformation coming from people who are on the side of Russia is, is far more. I'm not saying there's none from the Ukrainian side. If you go look, I did run like in the uh, first five or six months of the war, I ran like a Twitter thread of every single piece of misinformation that I could see. And it, it's the longest thread I've, I've, ever, I've ever run on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I kind of had to stop it because it was like, okay, it's now becoming so confusing for people to sort of scroll up and down. It's kind of so long now. But <laughs> um, if, if you go check that that Twitter thread, you know, it, 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 it also includes um, plenty of claims from the, from the Ukrainian side. But the level and the intensity and, and the consistency of the, the online misinformation coming from the pro-Russian side, not just from official Russian authorities and, you know, the individuals who are, who are linked to the Russian government or part of the Russian government on their online accounts and also Russian embassies, but also people who are ideologically, for whatever reason, either you're on the far right or on the far left, or you're a skeptic or, you know, you're into conspiracy theories or... You think, you know, Zelensky is some kind of a neo-Nazi and the Ukrainian government is, is basically uh, corrupt and is, and is under the control of Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or whatever. Whatever, whatever reason it might be. Those are the people who are sharing most of the misinformation and the vast bulk of it. Right, right. They have fully bought into the culture war that we're seeing here and it has sort of moved globally, like you said. And it's about to get worse again, because as you know, in 2024, we have another presidential election coming up here in this country and the campaigning has already started in earnest and we're starting to see it starting to get really, really nasty. And one of the ways it started to get bad is with the use of AI driven misinformation and disinformation. We've already seen videos hitting of Joe Biden supposedly declaring war on Russia. We've seen all kinds of stuff like that. What concerns do you have going into that 2024 election with the AI coming up with new ways to misinform and disinform people? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And, and the answer is not quite straightforward. So to be perfectly honest, my main concern still remains at this, at this specific point in time. And the bulk of misinformation that I see and I have to fact check every day is really, really bad, poor, rubbish, doctored memes, images that someone has taken two minutes or five minutes to create and so easily and so obviously fake that gets 20,000 retweets, 80,000 likes and 6 million views. Or something, some, something similar to that, not just Twitter specific, you know, 2 million views on TikTok, 150,000 shares on Facebook, uh, 50,000 likes on Instagram. That's still my number one concern because, as I say, the nature of social media is, is such 
that you do not, most people, first of all, do not have the time to check these, these memes and images and videos and claims as long as it looks appealing to them and it confirms their own existing political, social, cultural, economic biases, they just share it. They like it, they share it, they retweet it, they view it, whatever. What a form of form of engagement any specific platform has. So that's that's my main concern. Easily it, material that is that is created easily by you and me or somebody else on the smartphone or on the desktop in five minutes and then shared online that goes mega viral because it just confirms the biases of a certain group of people. AI is also a concern, but my, not my number one concern. The, the, the interesting thing about the advancement in AI is it's kind of last end of last year, early this year, that we've had these AI-generated images that look really, really good. So it's kind of actually quite recent, and it's and it's and it's developing really fast. Obviously, we've known the the um, the phenomenon of deepfakes, uh, which again are AI-generated content. But deepfakes, um, despite the fact that there was quite a lot of interest among sort of governments and officials and pe- persons of authority. Uh, for several years about it, never really was a massive problem uh, and never really took off in that sense because creating a really good, believable deep fake of, say, Joe Biden or Donald Trump actually actually is time-consuming and expensive. It's not easy. Most deep fakes are, like, really, really bad, the hmm, ones that right. they, they just create yourself. So it's not possible for ordinary people, people like you and me, to create a really, really good deep fake still. It's getting easier. We're getting there, but but not yet. So if you want to create a really good, but I don't know, there's there's like a deep fake um, Joe Rogan podcast, by the way, on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> it. Like there, there was one that got no, went really no. viral of Joe Rogan, AI Joe Rogan interviewing AI Donald Trump. And oh uh, it went really viral. But again, it's kind of obvious that that's not Joe Rogan and that's not Donald Trump. Although it, in, in some bits, it's actually good. So you have the technology to produce something like that, but you know, in order to make it really, really believable, you have to put quite a bit of effort and time and, and spend a bit of money. The point, the, the sort of AI-generated images using sort of mid-journey, and by the way, Photoshop has released a new version, um, a new update that includes like an AI-generated fill. I, I've, I've had a chance last couple of days to sort of uh, use it and mess around with it. It's really good. It's really, really good. Still, I, I would say um, with AI images, there are still some telltale signs, including backgrounds. They struggle with backgrounds. They struggle with hair, human hair. They struggle with facial and skin tones. They struggle with earlobes, struggle with fingers. Right. But with uh, landscapes and nature, they're really, really, in some cases, frighteningly good. So we are getting with the sort of AI-generated images to that place where your random average person can just sit in front of a, a computer and within five minutes generate a really, really good one or do it on an app on their smartphone. So we're getting, we're not there yet because as I say, some of these AI images, although some of them look really good, there are still ways to, to tell which ones are fake. But we're going to be there at some point, whether it's going to be next year, two years, three years, I don't know, down the line, but we're, we're going to get there. At the same time, it's it's worth keeping in mind that as these technologies are getting really, really good in terms of enabling you to produce something that is not real, 
they're also getting at the same time really, really good in terms of helping with tools and, and, and technologies that, 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 that enable you to tell whether something is real or not. So we now have uh, publicly available tools uh, online uh, where you can run images through them and they, and they tell you whether they, they are AI generated or not. They're not 100%. You know, I've, I've had mixed results with them, but they're going to get better as the technology gets better. They're going to get better as well. Obviously, reverse search, uh, image reverse, uh, reverse image search, which is my favorite way of checking stuff on the internet, is getting really, really good, getting much better. We now have Google Lens. I know some people don't like Google Lens, but, you know, it's in development. It's going to get better. Well, it's phenomenal. phenomenal. You know, those technologies stuff. will get better and better at the same time. I, get, I constantly get asked this question, you know, what if somebody produces a really good video of the president of the United States, whoever it may be, you know, two years from now, uh, declaring war and it's really really believable and hard to tell I don't think we're going to be in that situation that you know say uh, President Joe Biden or President Donald Trump or whoever it may be declares war on Russia and Vladimir Putin sees it and believes it and goes okay launch a retaliatory strike on on New York or Washington DC or LA or whatever because because you know you, there are still ways to find out whether the president of you, other ways to find out whether the president of the United States has declared war on another country or not, rather than a TikTok video or a Twitter video or some viral video online. So I don't have that much concern in that regard. My concern is, as you said, with like a presidential election or some big political campaign or event or a war like the war in Ukraine, material that, that, can, be, that can be generated that is believable enough to, to, to shape public opinion in one direction or the other. Again, that's all conjecture. Whether we will get to that to that place, I don't know. For the time being, uh, my concern, as I say, mostly sort of poor, cheaply generated fakes that for some reason go viral every single day. Uh, and by the way, that that you know, I, I'm not one of those people who, who sort of spread fear and paranoia about new technology. I'm I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when smartphones came around and broadband internet came around and social media platforms came around. All the things that people said, you know, the, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people would would lose their jobs. You know that we would be living in some sort of a dystopian uh, world and whatever. Most of those things didn't materialize. You know, humans are you know as bad as we are at some things. We're also good at figuring out. How to, how to deal with and live with new technologies. And I don't think any of us would want to go back to 20 or 30 years ago when we didn't have social media, when we didn't have uh, broadband internet, when we didn't have smartphones. You know, all of those things have changed our lives for the better, most of them, in most cases. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not fearful. Um, I do think, like, you know, technology is a, uh, is a two-edged sword, although it can be used by some bad people for nefarious purposes. Technology advancements in technology also beneficial to us in most cases, and you know it, it will also get better in terms of enabling us to deal with those bad actors with nefarious purposes. Yeah, I also don't think you can deny the fact that, and you see this all the time: the fake information, the misinformation that goes viral gets seen by 6 million people and the fact check gets seen by a hundred or right. a few thousand. So when you talk about the impact it has on the public and public opinion, it's impossible to gauge, but the more 
prolific this material is, the more it can change opinions and sway minds. And we don't want to see that happen based on fake information. People, everyone should be, be allowed to make up their own opinion and have their own beliefs, but they need to set those beliefs and come to those decisions based on as accurate information as possible. This job and this type of work is not about getting people to believe one thing or the other thing. People are free to believe whatever they want to believe. That's part of living in a free democratic society. It's about, you know, there are there, are, there is such a thing as, 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 as a shared truth. There, are, there is such a thing as, as actual, undeniable, indisputable facts that all of us, regardless of our own political views, or our own personal views, or our own personal conditions, or whatever, usually most of us have believed in and, and have shared those truths and facts. And uh, it's all about sticking to that and um, not having a situation where tons and tons of people suddenly start to completely change their viewpoints, their mindset based on something that is indisputably not true. So anything new, any stories, any projects you're working on right now that you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's always projects. At the moment, obviously, um, we're kind of, the, the sort of the Ukraine wars escalated again in an unprecedented way, obviously, in the last couple of months, um, there have been so many, so many events that we didn't predict, including like the drone attack on the Kremlin, and then just a couple of weeks ago, last week actually, uh, Novokhovka Dam in Ukraine that that was that was damaged uh, and breached and caused mass flooding, and now the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We also have the the infighting in Russia between the Defense Ministry and uh, the Wagner group yeah. what group of mercenaries which yeah. is kind of interesting so there's so much around the ukraine war at the moment that is taking the bulk of my time but at the same time i'm keen to sort of properly start getting into i mean that, that that's the thing with your presidential election campaigns they just they go on for like what two years yes it doesn't feel like they ever end it's like <laughs> am i getting a break no. so uh <laughs> yeah i mean you guys are gonna you guys are going to have your, I think the Republican primary, at least the debates are going to start uh, soon enough. And then once the, once the debates start, obviously, you're into full campaign mode. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, also sort of getting into the U.S. campaign properly. Hopefully it won't be, it won't be as traumatic as the one from 2020. Hopefully for, for, for everyone's sake. Crossing our fingers here. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... That's, that's also coming up. And also a couple of side issues. Um, uh, the, the problem with this type of work, again, for us in the Western world, is that we, we can sometimes get too focused on stories in the Western world, and particularly in English-speaking English speaking countries, say in America or UK or Germany, and, and sort of countries that are part of the, the wider West. Uh, but misinformation is not limited to the western world like you know just just recently we had this story in africa in kenya of a of a christian cult where nearly a hundred people actually died they were they're they actually buried in this in this sort of in, in this tiny field in kenya who were basically were basically radicalized by this uh, christian cult leader who told them they had to kill themselves in order to meet jesus and that story was not reported properly in the Western media. It's like a hundred people, a right. hundred people were buried in this piece of land who were, who were basically victims of a doomsday cult. And it didn't get proper coverage. There was another story in Mozambique, 
Week last month, where misinformation through word of mouth in a couple of tiny villages had led to riots about a cholera outbreak, had led to riots, and several people had been killed, police officers had been attacked, the World Health Organization had to send inspectors there. Again, minimum coverage in Western media. So I'm trying to, and this is what I've promised myself, you know. You have to, as as important as the stuff that happens in America and the Western world is, there are quite a lot of stories around conspiracy theories, victims of conspiracy theories, um, and cults and misinformation that happen in other parts of the world that get underreported, unfortunately. And it's on all of us to pay attention to those people and and to what's happening in their countries and their regions and cover their stories. So I'm, I've promised myself to do much more of that, hopefully. So this is something we have talked a lot about on this show, but we'd really like to get your take on it as well. We see a lot of the same sort of material you deal with on a daily basis. And while some of it is absurd, it can also be quite dark when you're looking at the potential harm that misinformation can cause towards marginalized groups and basically everybody else. And I'd like to get your take on how you practice self-care, keep doing the work day after day not take this stuff with you yeah uh where do i begin <laughs> uh, yeah i mean I, I get asked that question regularly um as, as i as i guess most other people who do similar work um you, you guys yourselves probably get asked that question because mm-hmm. yeah i mean some of the material that you look at uh i mean we're all human beings no matter how how long you've been doing this work and how accustomed you might be to seeing this type of footage. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the last year and a half, for instance, during the war in Ukraine, I mean, we've, we've had to see some traumatic mm-hmm. videos and images. I mean, war is hell. Everyone knows that. Um, and, you know, we have to we have to look at stuff that other people would, would not want to look at because it's our, it's our jobs. I mean, we're not forced to do it. But, um, yeah, like someone has to. <laughs> for the purpose of reporting and getting the facts to to audiences, someone has to. And it can it can take its toll. It can be quite traumatic, you know, when you go through some instances when when, you know, it's a matter of public public safety, public health, even even like, you know, videos of mass shootings, um, looking at the backgrounds of some of these people, the victims, all the rest of it, you know, it, it can be traumatic. And I've heard loads and loads and loads of stories from other friends and colleagues who do who do similar work and and the struggles i mean there's no there's no one you know recipe that they just recommend and go you know go do this and i've been doing this work for about 10 years now uh i've heard all sorts of different things from all sorts of different researchers and investigators and journalists and colleagues who do to do the same work for me personally i think it's it's very important to face first of all constantly switch off and when I say constantly, I mean, you know, go at your own pace, whatever works for you. Obviously, for, for those of us who do this as a full-time job, we have duties that we have to, that we have to abide by with our, with our employers. So you may not necessarily get it at your own pace and at, at your own time, but you still get like, you know, annual leave, you get time off, you get weekends and all the rest of it. Uh, so make sure there are times regularly throughout the year that you switch off. And when you switch off, like properly switch off. Um, because one of the problems of, of, of this type of work that I, that I hear regularly, and, and it's true, is that 
because it's an online focused work, like most of the material we look at and we deal with is online. We, we're not on the ground necessarily, unless there's some specific protest or rally or or some type of reporting that needs us to be on the ground. Most of the work is online. Right. And when you're permanently online, it gets really difficult to get yeah. to, to switch mm-hmm. off. Even if you uh, shut your computer down, you still have your phone, right? <laughs> you still, you know, I, I, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm having dinner and I'm looking at Telegram or I'm looking at 4chan <laughs> or I'm looking at TikTok. You know? <laughs> and it's unhealthy. It's not, but, but as I say, it's something that, and the other problem is with these sort of mis- online misinformation, conspiracy theories, online extremism, chatter moves at such a rapid pace that if you if, if you're not keeping across for like several days you feel like you're completely like you know you you add a loop you 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 have to go back and find out you know what's been going on the last week or right. so that you know, i wasn't checking yep. and you're like oh my god how much i've missed out <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean that's that's like you have to accept it you can't be across everything and anything it's impossible it's it's literally impossible and you have to take care of your mental health so Switch off regularly, and when you switch off, do things that are completely unrelated. Like, you mm-hmm. know, don't look at your phone, or if you're looking at your phone, not for the purpose of work. Get off social media, get off the internet, go out, you know, wherever you live, go out in the countryside, go in a park, go talk to your friends, um, have a cup of tea or coffee, have some drinks with your, with your friends, you know, watch a film, watch some, you know, series on Netflix binge on series on netflix or amazon prime or whatever or any of these uh streaming platforms read books books that are unrelated to your work uh, obviously you know that's another problem go read a book and you read a book about conspiracy theories or extremes <laughs> no read, a book, read, a novel. read something right. that's completely unrelated or just do things and tasks you know go do some dancing courses do language course whatever whatever it may be that just gets your mind off what you've been doing for the last month or two months or whatever that that often helps me um also having good friends in your life is really helpful like i don't have too many friends for somebody who's my age but i have really really good friends like the friends that i've picked for myself are like people i can trust with everything and anything you know when i'm when i'm just struggling i just ring one of my good friends and i go let's just have a chat or let's just go to to my local pub pub i mean you know in american context bars probably and just have a couple of drinks. I just want to, you know, it's been a rough week. I've just looked at some really terrible videos of children um, or victims of mass shootings or war footage or whatever. I'm not, I'm not well. And also the other thing that I find quite, quite helpful is try and make friends and, and contact other people who do the same work. That's mm. another thing. Like I, I probably, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think I know pretty much, I, I can't possibly know everyone. I think I know the vast majority of people in the Western world who do this work. And, and the reason for that is I reach out to them, um, you know, be it in sort of Germany or Spain or America or Canada or Mexico or Japan or South Korea or whatever, uh, as long as they speak English. And I can understand them. We can understand each other. I reach out to them and I talk to them. I, I you know, I'm, I'm actually part of like actual communities of people on, say, messaging platforms or on online platforms who do the same type of work. And when we struggle, because nobody else understands exactly what you're seeing and what you're going through, other than other colleagues who do the exact same work. Right. Because sometimes yeah. it's actually not easy to explain 
um, the material that you look at uh, to people, you know, who, who, who do not want to hear about it, do not want to know about it, understandably so. Um, so it's really good to make um, contact with other people who do the same type of work. You will find that the experiences that you have, the the, the sort of bad days, the, 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 the sort of mental issues that you might may, may be going through from time to time are actually quite shared by by pretty much everybody else who does the same job. And they, they can, they, as long as you can talk to each other honestly and, and without feeling, you know, is this unnormal? Am I not tough enough? No, no, no. It's not about being tough or whatever. It's it's actually harrowing footage and material that you're looking at every day. And, and, and the human mind is not designed to consume that type of content every single day, day after day, time, week after week, month after month. Uh, and we do for this type of work. So uh, do those things and hopefully you'll be okay. And by the way, this is now that I've got the opportunity. People like me are actually quite fortunate because I, I work with a major employer and through my employer, I get quite a lot of support, including you know consultations, regular sessions with sort of mental health experts to speak about exactly these types of things. I'm more concerned about friends and colleagues who are who do this work on top of their own full-time or part-time work that is not related they just do it in their own time as researchers as freelancers and they do not have a that's the sort of the support of a big employer with quite a lot of financial resources to to, to help them to look after them for those types of people again it's really really important that a, you have a good circle of friends around you. First of all, thank you for what you do. Uh, and I know quite a lot of them, by the way. I contact them, they contact me. You know, you're incredible. But have a close circle of friends around you and, and please, please, please contact other people who do similar work. You, you'll find it helpful. And oh, by the way, last thing, I have to say this as well. If you're, if you're going through a phase that you're struggling, you need to stop. Like, you know, this is this is something that, again, I've heard from colleagues, other journalists, other researchers, other open source investigators. Once you get bogged down into a specific type of project, specific kind of work, you've spent days, weeks, months investigating this story, looking at this video, looking at other footage linked to this, to this tons and tons of footage linked to a specific story that you think you're going to break a big story that is of interest for millions and millions of people. And you just carry on, you press on, you know you're not doing well, you know your body, your mind is telling you it's time to stop, but you just carry on because you think the work you're doing is important and valuable and other people should see it. I've actually seen people break down and it's not nice. When, when your mind tells you that it's time to stop, please, 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 you know, you're not, you're not superhuman, uh, you're not out to save the entire world. Just stop. Just stop, take time off, do things completely unrelated, whatever whatever time it may take, um, and then get back to it once you're okay again. Because if you don't, you're gonna have a breakdown, and it's usually not 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 cool. I've had it. Other people who do this work have had it. Yeah. When 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 you're having the signals that you have to stop, please stop. And if you don't have to watch, you know these these videos, this this horrific footage, please don't. That's a really good piece of advice there. Definitely listen to yourself, listen to what your sense of self is telling you about how much more you can handle of this kind of thing. So, you know, thank you for saying that. That's a very valuable thing to hear. Definitely. Yeah. 
really is from somebody who has been in this space and this information war, whatever you want to call it for quite a long time. And I'm sure has seen as much or more than basically anyone. So please listen to this man mm-hmm. and stay informed and, and take care of yourself. Definitely. Well, one thing I, I did want to say and that I love about your work is that you are very fair and you are absolutely willing to call out misinformation, disinformation, whether it be right, left, center, what have you, you are out there on the front line correcting people when they take missteps. So again, it looks like you are expanding that fair coverage and and bringing pretty much as much as you can to the table and covering as many perspectives as you can. So we think that's invaluable and we, we very much appreciate it. And we know it, it can be hard because you are, you are a person with your own beliefs and your own values. And I know for us, it can be hard to correct or fact check something that we want to believe in or that we wish was true, but it isn't. But truth matters. And I feel like you're doing a lot to advance the truth and and help us get to a better place and where we need to be as a society so you're very kind but yeah you're absolutely right you know misinformation is not right wing or left wing or libertarian or socialist or communist or up and down or sideways it comes from all directions i've seen it from every political ideology every background and it you know it has to be called out it it, it may come from me you know i i make mistakes i'm human and, you know, if I make mistakes, I have to be fact-checked and called out, you know, as, as long as all of us, like, make it a thing to hopefully care about the truth and seek for what's actually true and what's not, we would all be in a better place. But, yeah, it's not, it's not a partisan issue at all and shouldn't be because it affects all of us, regardless of background and ideology and beliefs and how we vote and what we think. Absolutely. Indeed. Well, Cheyenne, thank you so much for coming on with us. This is a lot of fun, learned a lot, and we're really, really thank you for your time. We appreciate you taking the time to do this. Anything else you'd like to shout out while you're here? No, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to to speak. And yeah, really enjoyed it. Indeed. Yeah, it was great. Do it again. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Have a great Take day. Care. Take, Take care. care. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word four, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza, BJJ, G-R-Z-A, BJJ, as well as DNW Pod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.